morning. Please turn in your Bibles this morning to Acts chapter 21. Acts chapter 21. We're going to start reading in verse 27, and we're going to go all the way to chapter 22, verse 21. But we'll start in Acts 21, 27. Last week, Paul was finishing up his third missionary journey. On his way back to Jerusalem from Corinth, he had been warned several times that things would not go well for him in Jerusalem, and yet he was compelled by the Holy Spirit to go. He said he was ready not only to be bound in Jerusalem, but also to die for Jesus there. When Paul got to Jerusalem, he received a warm reception, but Jewish Christians in Jerusalem had heard rumors that Paul was teaching Jews to forsake the law of Moses and not to have their children circumcised. But we saw last week that they misunderstood Paul. Regarding the law of Moses, Paul himself had taken a Jewish vow in accordance with the law of Moses, and he made it his practice to go to the synagogues on the Sabbath. And Paul himself insisted that circumcision or uncircumcision was irrelevant. The issue for Paul was not circumcision or the Jewish law. The issue was what someone was relying on to be in right relationship to God. Paul insisted that we are not saved by the works of righteousness we do, but solely by God's grace through faith in Christ. The leaders of the Jerusalem church suggested that to ease concerns, Paul should take four Jewish Christians to the temple to pay for the ceremonies necessary for the completion of their vow, which involved purification rituals and animal sacrifice. And Paul agreed. And that brings us up to today. Let's read chapters or chapter 21, verses 27 to 31. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us! This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our laws in this place. And beside, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. And while they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. Let's pray. Lord, open our hearts to your word this morning. Give us discernment. Help us to be receptive. And use your word to deepen our love and commitment to you. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. So according to verse 27, when the seven days of purification were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Now remember that the city of Ephesus was the main city in the province of Asia. So these Jews from the province of Asia are probably some of the same people who had nearly started a riot in Ephesus when Paul was there. Like Paul, they had also come to Jerusalem for the annual celebration of Pentecost. According to verse 28, Paul's opponents got the crowd riled up by saying that Paul opposed the law of Moses and that he had brought Greeks or Gentiles into the temple. 
Now, that was a serious charge. As you know, the Jews were not allowed to legally execute anyone without official Roman approval. But there was one exception. If a Gentile entered the inner courts of the temple, Jews could execute him without Roman permission. So the charge that Paul had brought a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple was very serious indeed. When verse 30 says the whole city was aroused, I think that's probably hyperbole. But the point was that people were in the temple from all over the city and they came running. They grabbed Paul and dragged him out of the temple. After all, it wouldn't be right to kill someone on temple grounds. That would defile the temple. So they were going to drag him outside of the temple grounds before murdering him. Fortunately for Paul, God used the Romans to intervene. According to verses 32 to 34, the commander of the Roman troops, who was responsible for maintaining peace in the temple, immediately took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some people in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks. You'll remember that last summer, a truck driver was driving down 35W in Minneapolis when he found that protesters had blocked the freeway. They dragged him out of his truck and began beating him. I bet he would have been able to relate to how Paul must have felt as they dragged Paul out of the temple and began beating him. When the Roman commander who was keeping watch on the temple grounds saw that a disturbance was developing, he immediately sprang into action. After all, it was his responsibility to maintain order during the festival. According to verse 32, the crowd had been beating Paul, so he was probably bruised and bloody by the time the Roman commander got to him. The commander, however, then arrested Paul and ordered him to be taken to the barracks, almost certainly the barracks of the soldiers stationed in the Antonio Fortress. There was a large fortress called the Antonio Fortress, physically connected to the temple courtyard, where the Romans could oversee the temple grounds and watch for disturbances, just like this one. The existence of this place is mentioned by Josephus and has been verified by archaeologists, but we'll talk about that more later. Paul was then taken to this fortress. If you've ever seen pictures of the U.S. Capitol or Supreme Court buildings, you know that they have very wide and impressive stone stairways leading up to the entrance. Those are similar to the steps leading up to the Antonio Fortress. And these are the steps we read about in the next few verses. Let's read verses 35 to 39. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek, he replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus in Kilikia, a city of no ordinary, or a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to this people. When the commander asked Paul if he was the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists in the wilderness, this is yet another one of those historical details that's verified by sources outside of the Bible. 
but we'll come to back to that later too. In verses 39 to 40, the commander becomes satisfied that Paul is not the Egyptian terrorist, and he allows Paul to speak to the crowd. Starting in verse 40, after receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense. When they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they all became very quiet. Then Paul said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city. I studied under Gamaliel and was thoroughly trained in the law of our ancestors. I was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death, arrested both men and women, throwing them into prison, as the high priests and all the council can themselves testify. I even obtained letters from them to their associates in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. Now, although Paul was born in Tarsus in south-central Turkey, he had been brought up in Jerusalem. Paul said he studied under Gamaliel, who was a very prominent rabbi. To have studied under Gamaliel was a big deal. It might be like an evangelist today who had personally studied under Billy Graham, or like Kurt Wise. Kurt Wise was a colleague of mine at Bryan College. Kurt was a paleontologist who got his doctor's degree under Harvard scientist Stephen Jay Gould, one of the most prominent evolutionists in the entire world. In fact, Dr. Gould may have been one of the most foremost evolutionists in history. Having studied under Dr. Gould, Kurt Wise knows the theory of evolution as well as anyone in the world today. And yet, Dr. Wise is a six-day, 24-hour creationist. Similarly, Paul studied under one of the greatest Jewish thinkers of his day, and yet Paul became a Christian. Both Kurt Wise and Paul knew their opponents' arguments as well, if not better, than their opponents did. And yet Kurt and Paul are convinced of the truthfulness of Christianity. In verse 4, Paul added, I persecuted followers of this way to their death, arresting both men and women, throwing them into prisoner prison. When Paul, uh, when Paul talks about this way, he's talking about Christians, of course. They were probably called the way because Jesus said he was the way, truth, and life. Paul adds in verse 5 that the high priest and the council, or Sanhedrin, can testify to the truthfulness of what he is saying because they are the ones who authorized him to go to Damascus to arrest Christians. In other words, Paul had been absolutely positively convinced that he was right about persecuting Christians until his encounter with Jesus changed his entire outlook on life. Paul tells about it starting in verse 6. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, we read this story earlier in Acts chapter 9. The difference is that in Acts 9, Luke is telling the story from his perspective, whereas in Acts chapter 22, 
Paul is telling his own story. In the past, some people have said that there is a contradiction between these two stories in chapters 9 and 22. In chapter 22, verse 9, the King James Version reads, And they that were with me saw indeed the light, and were afraid, but they heard not the voice of him that spake to me. In other words, according to Acts 9.22 in the King James Version, those with Paul did not hear the voice. But earlier in Acts 9.7, it specifically says they did hear the voice. Sounds like a clear contradiction. Unfortunately, the King James Version did not translate this accurately. In chapter 22, verse 9, the NIV, the ESV, the New Living Translation, and New American Standard Translation all translate the Greek correctly when they say that they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. In other words, chapters 9 and 22 agree that those who accompanied Paul heard the voice of Jesus. They just didn't understand what the voice was telling Paul. Remember the old Charlie Brown shows on TV? Whenever an adult spoke to Charlie Brown, he understood exactly what they were saying. But all we heard was, wah, 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 wah. The people with Paul heard the voice, but did not understand it. There's no contradiction between chapters 9 and 22. Now, many liberal theologians would like to imagine that Paul's encounter with Jesus was all in Paul's head, as if the heat had gotten to him or something. But according to Acts chapters 9 and 22, the people with Paul also heard something, and they even saw the light. In other words, Luke wants us to understand that this was not just something taking place in Paul's imagination. Paul's encounter with Jesus was also something that the others with Paul witnessed as well. Paul continues his testimony, starting in verse 10. What shall I do, Lord? I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go to Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus, because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. He stood behind me, beside me and said, Brother Paul, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see him. Then he said, The God of our ancestors has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all people of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When Paul got to Damascus, a man named Ananias came to see him. According to verse 12, Ananias was a devout Jewish Christian who followed the law of Moses. Ananias then miraculously restored Paul's sight. Still addressing the crowd in verse 16, Paul says that Ananias told Paul to get up, be baptized, wash away your sins, calling on his name. In verses 17 to 21, Paul concludes his address to the crowd by talking about how he was rejected when he went back to Jerusalem after his conversion in Damascus, and how God had sent him to the Gentiles. 
We'll have to wait until next week to find out how the crowd responds to Paul's message. Spoiler alert, it doesn't go well. So what do we learn from this passage? Well, first, once again, we see Luke's historical accuracy. When chapter 21, verse 38, talks about an Egyptian who started a revolt, we learn from first century Jewish historian Josephus that there really was such an Egyptian who started a revolt. According to Josephus, during the governorship of Felix, an Egyptian rebel, who Josephus calls a cheat and false prophet, gathered several thousand men around him, planning to attack Jerusalem. When Governor Felix heard this, he sent his soldiers and attacked the Egyptians' followers, taking 200 captive and killing 400 more, but the Egyptian himself got away. The fact that this Egyptian terrorist had escaped is why the Roman commander thought Paul might be that Egyptian. So Luke was right not only about the existence of this Egyptian terrorist, but also about the fact that the Egyptian had not been captured or killed. Luke also got the timing right. The rebellion led by this Egyptian terrorist lasted from 52 to 58 AD. And Paul got to Jerusalem in 59 AD. So when the commander asked if Paul was that Egyptian, the rebellion was an event fresh in the commander's mind. Luke's accuracy is also confirmed when he tells or when he says that people wanted to kill Paul for bringing a Gentile into the inner courts of the temple. Archaeologists have actually discovered ancient signs once posted in the temple saying basically that any Gentiles passing beyond this point has only themselves to blame for their own death. Now, apparently Trophimus the Greek wasn't there when the mob dragged Paul out of the temple courtyard, so they thought we were justified in killing Paul instead. Not only that, but archaeologists have also discovered the remains of the Antonio Fortress, where Paul was likely imprisoned. As we've seen throughout this book, Luke's accuracy has been confirmed over and over and over again. Second, Contrary to the health, wealth, and prosperity people, it is entirely possible to be smack dab in the middle of God's will, as Paul was, and not have things work out well for you. I hate to sound like a broken record, but this point just keeps coming up over and over again in the book of Acts. Just because bad things are happening in your life does not necessarily mean that God is mad at you or punishing you or that you don't have enough faith. We don't always know why bad things happen. Often bad things happen simply because we live in a fallen, sinful world that is under the control of the evil one. Our job is just to try to be faithful to the Lord and glorify him regardless of the circumstances. Finally, verse 16 says that Ananias commanded Paul to get up, be baptized, and wash away your sins, calling on his name. It was not the baptism that washed away Paul's sin. It was calling on the name of Jesus in faith that washed away Paul's sin. Baptism just symbolizes that faith. As we've seen over and over again in Acts, baptism should be the initial expression of one's new faith in Christ. The New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian. Billy Graham used to have people walk down the aisle to get saved. It would have been more biblical if he could have had them come forward to be baptized. Jesus once said that if people deny him before men, he would deny them before God. If you've never been baptized, 
Don't let embarrassment or shyness stop you from making a public profession of your faith through baptism. And of course, if you've never repented of your sins and surrendered your heart and life over to Jesus Christ in faith as your ruler and king, please don't keep putting that off. If you have any questions, please come and see me. Let's pray. Lord, for all of us who are experienced hardships of various kinds, strengthen us and help us to bring glory to you regardless of the circumstances. And Lord, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who has never committed their hearts and lives to you in faith, that you would convict them of their sin and draw them to yourself. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.